All right, so Esther, um, you know, most of the other books that we've talked about here recently, I think because they're less familiar to us, I've done a lot of reading just to kind of, you know, you get, get the background, you kind of get a sense of um, what's going on in the book, what the plot and the storyline is. And I'm going to assume that most of you are familiar with the story of Esther. All right, so I'm not just going to read through this because there are a couple things that come out in this book that I want to spend a little more time talking about. <clears throat> Okay, we will put it in context, though. What have we been talking about here for the last few months? Haggai, Zechariah, the people coming back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, and more recently, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, so Esther is, during this time, uh, these are the years of King Xerxes, okay, which is, of course, the king in the book of Esther. So we're kind of, you know, we're in here around the time of, of Ezra and uh, just before Nehemiah. All right, so of course the villain here is Haman, who was the prime minister of the whole Persian Empire. So I just grabbed a picture. Who knows exactly what Haman looked like? And of course you remember that uh, Xerxes appointed him to this position and then commanded everyone to bow down before him. And of course there was one person that wouldn't, Mordecai. And Haman was furious when he realized that Mordecai was not going to kneel and bow to him. Okay, so he's very jealous about this. And I think his words here to King Xerxes are worth thinking about here just a little bit. So Haman told the king, There is a certain race of people scattered all over your empire and found in every province. They observe customs that are not like those of any other people. Moreover, they do not obey the laws of the empire. So it is not in your best interest to tolerate them. Okay, now, uh, were the Jews rebels here, is this really an accurate uh, reflection? They don't obey the laws of the empire. Um, well, he's, he's really distorting things here for his advantage. And so he said, if it please your majesty, issue a decree that they are to be put to death. If you do, I guarantee that I will be able to put 375 tons of silver into the royal treasury for the administration of the empire. Now, these words, this is a, this is a formula. Um, if you want to succeed by kingdom of the world standards, and the kingdom of the world, is, as I've tried to describe, it's, it's a power structure. You try to get to the top. You try to push other people down. Your, your goal is to gain more and more power. Um, this, this is a, a formula that works. We have lots of examples here in the Bible. I mean, what did the, what did the serpent do at the tree? First, lied about God. You know, has God really said you can't eat any fruit in this garden? Uh, well, God has lied to you. You won't die. So he first trashed God's reputation unfairly. And then what did he do? He stimulated uh, selfish desire in Eve. If you eat this fruit, then you will be like God. Okay, so it's very effective. Um, remember, what did Absalom do? Uh, to undermine David. The people would come to David for advice, and Absalom was there hanging around. He flattered the people. He hugged them that would come to visit David. And then he would kind of subtly say, you know, it's too bad you don't get justice um, here from this system. All right, so this, this is really a formula for success by kingdom of the world standards. You, you undermine, you lie about the person that you're trying to gain advantage over, and then you you somehow flatter, you stimulate pride or selfish desire in the person that you're trying to get something from. Okay, and it really works. And so, again, kingdom of the world. I think uh, survival of the fittest, um, this is, it's kind of the principle that, that our world, um, separated uh, in many ways from our creator, operates on. Okay, the, the stronger, 
abuse, exploit, eat. It's, it's, it's a top-down um, kind of a system. Okay, which is why, at least for me, however we conceive of how our world was created, um, I, I, I can't personally imagine the God who would lay down his life for others. I mean, with the one with the strength, giving up everything, using a system where the stronger preys on the weaker as a means of creating you and I. But that's another uh, subject. How much is 375 tons of silver? Well, you can do wonderful things on the internet. Here's a 375-ton ship. Okay, so that's a lot. It's a it's a massive amount. You can imagine here for the king thinking he can fill his storehouses with that much silver. Okay, so uh, now we get to here to the interesting part of the story. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes in anguish. Then he dressed in sackcloth, covered his head with ashes, and walked through the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, until he came to the entrance of the palace. He did not go in because no one wearing sackcloth was allowed inside. Throughout all the provinces, wherever the king's proclamation was made known, there was loud mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, wailed, and most of them put on sackcloth and lay in ashes. When Esther's servant women and eunuchs told her what Mordecai was doing, she was deeply disturbed. She sent Mordecai some clothes to put on instead of the sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then she called Hathak, one of the palace eunuchs, appointed as her servant by the king, and told him to go to Mordecai and find out what was happening and why. Hathak went to Mordecai in the city square at the entrance of the palace. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him and just how much money Haman had promised to put into the royal treasury if all the Jews were killed. He gave Hathak a copy of the proclamation that had been issued in Susa, ordering the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai asked him to take it to Esther, explain the situation to her, and have her go and plead with the king and beg him to have mercy on her people. Hathak did this, and Esther gave him this message to take back to Mordecai. If anyone, man or woman, goes to the inner courtyard and sees the king without being summoned, that person must die. That is the law. Everyone from the king's advisors to the people in the province know this. There is only one way to get around this law. If the king holds out his gold scepter to someone, then that person's life is spared. But it has been a month since the king sent for me. Okay, so she has a real uh, dilemma here. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you are made queen for just such a time as this. And that's probably the most famous verse uh, that's quoted um, from the book of Esther. And so, again, we kind of imagine, here's from the movie, if any of you have seen this, Esther, and having this situation, knowing that the rule is you die if you go to the king uh, without um, an invitation. Okay, so uh, she thought about this. And, of course, uh, you know the decision that she made. And um, so Esther sent Mordecai this reply, go and get all the Jews in Susa together, hold a fast and pray for me. Don't eat or drink anything for three days and nights. My servant women and I will be doing the same. After that, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I must die for doing it, I will die. Well, that actually is probably the famous verse in Esther, is it? If I must die for doing it, I will die. And Mordecai then left and did everything that Esther had told him to do. Now, um, you know, we're, we're trying 
here, even though we're in the Old Testament, like last time. We, if we can get glimpses of the kingdom and what the kingdom is like, uh, we want to make a lot out of that, like we did with the story of Nehemiah last time. And, and I think here we get another glimpse of the kingdom. And again, we only really know what the kingdom is like um, as it was revealed by the king uh, when he lived here among us. And I think we do get a glimpse of the kingdom here. So Esther came, and of course the king accepted her. And you know the story about how um, she had Haman over, they had a feast, they had it twice, and then finally she dropped uh, the bombshell here in Esther 7. If it please your majesty to grant my humble request, my wish is that I may live and that my people may live. My people and I have been sold for slaughter. If it were nothing more serious than being sold into slavery, I would have kept quiet and not bothered you about it. But we are about to be destroyed, exterminated. Then King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who dares to do such a thing? Where is this man? And Esther answered, our enemy, our persecutor, is this evil man, Haman. Okay, and then we get a, this very dramatic here a reversal of fortune for King Haman, who you know, built the gallows to hang Mordecai, Mordecai and then uh, that's exactly what happened to him. Okay, but uh, I, think, I think we just need to, to hover around here a little bit on the decision um, that Esther made, because I think it's a, it's a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And uh, I want to just talk about, there, there are four words for love um, that are used um, here in the Greek, of course, agape, which I'm going to come back to and say that this is an example of agape love. But let me just talk about the other four words that are used. Eros, or, you know, which kind of here in the word erotic, which is more of a uh, love in a sexual uh, manner. Uh, story is another form which is more affection through familiarity. So maybe a, a cousin or someone that, you know, you're not close to, you've known a long time, you see them at Christmas, and, you know, you enjoy seeing them, but it's more in that, that kind of a, of a relationship. Um, phileo, of course, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Now, this is an affectionate, sentimental, passionate love, brotherly love. Okay, and it's based largely on emotions. And because of that, it's subject to change, as feelings change. Okay, and kind of want to contrast that with um, agape love. Okay, agape love is love in its highest and truest form. Okay, it's the love of which there is no greater. And in a contrast to uh, phileo, where this is used, this is based more on a, a decision uh, than on emotions. It's based more on principles that we have adopted and that we choose to live that way rather than, than something that primarily appeals to our emotions. And it has more to do with how we, how we treat others. Um, I should have included the reference here from a, a Bible dictionary that I like, but that it adds principle to feeling in such a way that principle controls the feeling. It brings into play the higher powers of the mind and intelligence. So again, we, we have, with agape love, we've adopted a way of living, a principle that we adhere to, and, and we live according to that principle. And when agape love is used in the Bible, again and again, it is selfless, other-centered love. It's love that sacrifices for others, even at risk to ourself. So the familiar verse here in John 15, 13, there is no greater love, and that's agape, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Okay, it's, it's a dangerous in the sense that we sacrifice safety um, here for the sake of others. Okay, that's exactly what Esther did. I, if I must die for doing it, I will die. That's, that's a good example of agape um, type of love. 
Okay, so this is a reflection, again, of the love that Jesus revealed to us. It's a reflection of the kingdom. Not, uh, it's not safe. So just some other examples here. Of course, most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God loved agape the world so much, and what did he do in that love? He gave. Okay, there's a, there's a sacrifice that is involved um, in agape love. And I think I read this recently in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, what love is not. Love is not self-seeking. Okay, love is something that is directed outwards to others. Again, even when it involves cost to oneself. So others have have tried to paint the picture um, here a little bit. What is this? I like this quote from Richard Strauss. It is a love which keeps loving when its object is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, or completely unworthy. It gives 100% and expects nothing in return. Again, there's no selfish component um, to this type of love. And we could contrast that with, again, the other three types where, where there certainly could be. Now, a last point on this. I really like this story um, at the end of John. So remember, Peter denied Jesus, and you know, he's humiliated. And, but Jesus kind of has to work over this ground with him again. So he has this amazing conversation um, with Peter just before he's resurrected. So after they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? Yes, Lord, he answered. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he answered, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And a third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter became sad because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And here is maybe one example where I think we missed something uh, in, in maybe, uh, I wish I understood Greek, but here maybe we missed something in the translation. Because when Jesus said here the first time, do you love me? Um, he used the word agape. And Peter's response, you know that I love you. He used the word phileo. Second time, Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter responded, you know that I phileo you. And then the third time, when Jesus said, do you love me? He used the word phileo, do you phileo me? And then Peter became sad. And so I I think, uh, I don't know, this has been interpreted in various ways, but I like to think here that, uh, you know, Peter's response, it seemed a little bit incongruent with Jesus using the word agape. And um, Peter responding with the word phileo, you know that I phileo you. And here when Jesus said, do you phileo me? Peter became sad. Because what is Jesus trying to do here? I mean, Peter betrayed him, you know, in that moment where he had to sacrifice or, you know, what, what was he going to do? And what is Jesus preparing Peter for? If we just read on, I am telling you the truth. When you were young, you used to get ready and go anywhere you wanted to. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. And from pretty good sources, we know that Peter um, was crucified, probably upside down. So is Jesus trying to prepare Peter for something uh, much greater? Again, that self-sacrificial um, type of love. Okay, so again, I think, uh, I think it's a wonderful example here in Esther in the Old Testament of doing something at sacrifice for yourself. So again, if you keep quiet at a time like this, 
Um, there are moments, I mean, this is a big moment, a big story here in Esther, life or death kind of situation. Uh, we have these every day, just in daily life, this kind of decision about treating people in a certain way or another type of way. So uh, just, you know, example that came up with my kids recently. Um, you know, there's a child uh, at um, a school that, you know, there's always one unpopular child that people like to pick on and joke about. And it's very difficult in that situation. If everyone's making fun of the unpopular person, uh, for a person, a child to stand up and say, you know, we really should, let's not be talking about this person that way. I mean, you, it's much easier just to laugh and go along. Okay, so uh, we had to talk about that uh, with my kids. But I think anytime we see a weaker person being abused, that has to call out something in us to do something. Okay, even at cost to our reputation or popularity, that, that that's a time when we can choose to live one way or another way. So I like this Greg Boyd quote, what is agape love? It is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. So there are small things that happen every day, and I think the better off we see what God's kingdom is like, we begin to see it just in the way we treat people, the way we talk with people, that it's an, it's an everyday interaction, that we have a choice in which way we're going to live. But sometimes it's very dramatic. Do uh, any of you know who Tank Man is? You heard of Tank Man? Well, this was uh, the summer between my first and second year of uh, medical school. And uh, I was roofing houses with my dad that summer. And uh, the Tiananmen Square Massacre, this is what I'm, what's, it's referring to. And so I just wanted to kind of show you a, a video clip here. Because here's a person that made a, a great uh, risk I would say, and I first want to just play, because this is a peaceful demonstration people were having in Tiananmen Square, and the troops went in and massacred over 7,000 people. So before showing you Tank Man, I'll just kind of play. This is the setting for what was going on. The noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of Peking. It was unremitting. So I, I did a lot of reading about Tank Man here last night, and no one really knows what happened to him. Most people think he was probably executed about 14 days later. Um, so no one really is sure who he is, even. There are some, some theories out there. But again, um, you, know, you know, it is often said that turning the other cheek, living in that way, well, it's, it's kind of a weak, uh, it's a kind of weakness, isn't it? Uh, but was Tank Man weak? I mean, uh, that takes great power uh, to do something like that. It's not weakness. Okay, and so, of course, I think the ultimate, I mean, when you've got all the power, of course, as Jesus did, he had, could call legions of angels, and yet to still do, do, go ahead and, and do what he did. Great power in that. And I think great capacity to change. Now, here's a question, though. And for those of you that came uh, last Saturday, we, uh, Dorothy kind of talked about this. Well, what if living in this way doesn't work? Okay, because it might not. It didn't, did it work for Tank Man? Well, maybe some people um, were changed by that. But is that... Is that the basic ethics for the way we live? We do what is primarily effectiveness. That's what, that's what our, we revolve our decisions around. Will it work or not? And I like this quote by Stanley Hauervoss, that the basis for the ethics on the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually does not, but advocated because this is the way God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. So again, our, our highest principle for acting is not primarily effectiveness, but rather faithfulness. And I think that, um, I think it actually does work. Um, and I think 
when, when you know, someone acts in that way. We're not used to seeing that. But it does force change in others. At least you're, you're, you give people the choice of, okay, now this is something radically different. And uh, it can result in change. Jesus' death, of course, looked ineffective. Remember, even his disciples fled. Looked like it didn't work. But look what happened in the long run. Okay, so it's at personal cost, but it can have, a, a, I think, a very powerful effect. And a good parallel to this is uh, Daniel's three friends. Remember, were asked to bow down, and they refused. And they said, if the God whom we serve is able to save us from the blazing furnace and from your power, then he will. But even if he doesn't, even if it doesn't work, your majesty may be sure that we will not worship your God and we will not bow down to the gold statue that you have set up. Again, they're holding to a principle. Okay, effective, maybe not, but we're holding with this principle uh, above effectiveness. And the, the greatest quote for this, I mean, the words I'm kind of paraphrasing here are from Yoder, who said, this vision of ultimate good being determined by faithfulness and not results is where we modern men get off, where we get it wrong. Okay, that faithfulness is, is the highest principle. We would choose that above effectiveness. And uh, with regards to safety, I mean, in the long run, what is really safe? You know, C.S. Lewis said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So again, in the long run, um, we could say the safest way to live may not be safe for our short time on this earth, but in the long run, uh, it really is. Now, so that, that's one point. The other I just want to make here in, in conclusion on the book of Esther is, what are the Jews doing in Persia? Because you remember these last few Bible studies, we've been talking about the commands, go back, return to Jerusalem, rebuild the city. And just from Zechariah here, where the Lord said, I, I scattered you in all directions, but now you exiles escape from Babylonia, return to Jerusalem. And anyone who strikes you strikes the apple of my eye or strikes what is most precious to me. Okay, so what are these people doing um, in Persia? And uh, what I would just like to consider about this is, you know, were they following God's plan? Didn't God want them to go back to Jerusalem? Uh, What happens to people that don't follow God's plan for their life? Uh, Well, I think all of us don't follow God's plan at times. Okay, so, uh, but what I like about the story here is you have people that didn't return, didn't care enough to go back to Jerusalem, and yet what do we see God doing? He's still working with them. Okay, so I think it's, uh, you know, we like to quote verses as key texts, that God is love, God is this, God is that. Um, I think it's much more compelling when we see a story. Okay, the story adds credibility to some of the key texts. And here we see, you know, a people that didn't follow God's plan, uh, but yet God was still with them. He still helped them. So I think, you know, for each of us, maybe God has a plan for you to go to Africa or work at the VA hospital or who knows, whatever it might be, and is trying to non-coercively lead you in that direction. Okay, but um, maybe it doesn't work out that way. Okay, maybe you don't follow those leadings. But I think we could still say, based on lots and lots of stories like this, that, okay, plan B, plan C. Maybe we're at plan Z, but God is still, you know, trying to work out something good in our lives. And so if we just return to Peter, since we were talking about him earlier, where Jesus said, Simon, Simon, I mean, this is the night here before Jesus died. Listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you, to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. But yet he seems to know that it will, because he says, and when you turn back to me, 
you must strengthen your brother. So Jesus didn't want Simon or Peter to betray him three times. Okay, but he did. Um, and yet there's encouragement here. And when you do turn back to me, uh, you must strengthen your brothers. And so it's, it's encouraging to see you know, how God works with people that uh, maybe turn against him um, time and again. All right, so next time, Malachi, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the examples that we have of people who have um, just boldly done what is right in difficult circumstances. Um, help us to internalize this principle of your kingdom, um, this principle that, um, that looks for the needs of others, even at, when it comes at risk to ourself. Uh, help us to see that more clearly. Help us to live it out in our lives. Amen.